Some people value creativity. Great, are you blocking off an hour and a half twice a week to write or to read? Because if you're not, then don't tell me that you value creativity. And getting philosophical and getting intellectual and having conversations like this is so important. But then there's also doing. And doing these things is equally as important. And it's not as sexy and it's not as fun and it's not as interesting to talk about, but that's where the actual change happens. In this episode, I'm joined by Brad Stolberg. Brad is a best-selling author who researches, writes, and coaches on performance and well-being. His books include Peak Performance, The Passion Paradox, and The Practice of Groundedness, which this interview focuses on. Some of the key topics covered in this conversation include Brad's experiences with OCD and how they eventually led him to writing The Practice of Groundedness, the importance of prioritizing the process over outcomes, the curious paradox of Carl Rogers, and why counterintuitively the best foundation for getting better coming from a place of feeling good enough, the dark horse path to happiness, and more. You can learn more about Brad's work by going to bradstilberg.com. All right, Brad, welcome to the show. The question I'm kind of curious to sort of start the interview with is maybe I'd like to know, to ask you about your experiences with OCD and how this led to writing the book. Mm. Well, I was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder um, when I shortly after I turned 30 years old. And this was after my first book had been named a bestseller and my second book, the manuscript has been submitted. So professionally and creatively, uh, I was in a really good groove and, um, it really just crept up on me and blindsided me, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder. It's, uh, often highly misunderstood, uh, disorder. A lot of people think that it is about being overly organized or double checking that the door's locked or being neurotic, but clinical OCD is characterized by just constant intrusive thoughts, feelings, and urges. Um, it's almost as if it's a mix of really bad anxiety and really bad depression that just never leaves you alone. And, um, that really, as you can imagine, just completely rocked my world. I'm really fortunate that I was able to seek care from just a wonderful therapist and psychiatrist really early on to get me on the right track, but it certainly made me pause and step back from everything in my life and including my work. And I realized that I'd been focusing a lot on peak performance and what it takes to uh, reach peak levels and, and to climb towards those peak levels. But I hadn't focused that much on the foundation. And it was a time in my life when I had the rug swept out from under me and really needed to pay attention to rebuilding my own foundation. And um, aside from my own OCD, in the culture at large, it seemed like perhaps not to the extent of a clinical problem, but just many people were feeling very frantic, frenetic, overwhelmed, anxious. And um, the mix of wanting to explore what I was going through and how I could rebuild better. And then also just seeing so many people, um, perhaps not knowing it, but I feel deep down inside and the success of the book would say as well, just hungry for building a foundation that, that led me to this book. Amazing, amazing. Now, you know, I've heard you talk about this elsewhere and you were in some really dark places with this. Um, like you were, this wasn't something that was just a passing thing. Like you were in a, a, a dark hole here. Yeah, that's right. It, um, 
I'd say for the first three to four months, um, it was all consuming, meaning I could go through the motions and kind of fake an interview that I had to do or uh, show up for something and appear to be there, but I wasn't really there. I was, I was in my head in, in a really dark spot. Um, probably at about the five month mark, I started to notice some improvement. And um, I'd say the whole experience, you know, of being in Dante's dark woods was solid nine, 10 months, the better part of a year. And this book didn't originate in that period. There was no good creative work going on. When I was in that period, it was just survival and trying to get better. So this was very much an exercise that started to occur on the other side of those dark woods, or at the very least, once I was um, starting to see the light and I could, I could breathe a little bit and intellectualize this instead of just try to survive it. Very interesting. Now, you spent years writing this, this book on the practice of groundedness and sort of researching and really sort of wrapping your head around these six principles. So I'm also curious to ask, you know, how has writing this book changed you as a person? How has it changed your daily experience of life? Well, in many ways, uh, I think the, the first and foremost way is it has helped me to think about things more non-dualistically. So dual thinking is this or that. It's very linear. And non-dual thinking is often this and that. And when it comes to groundedness and certainly how I define it, you almost have to embody the ability to hold two competing ideas at the same time. Because on the one hand, I do firmly believe, and this is a part of groundedness, that striving for excellence is really meaningful and it gives texture and richness uh, to our lives. However, on the other hand, we can get so caught up in striving that we can start to do it unskillfully. And rather than bring joy and texture to our lives, it can destroy our lives. So either or thinking would say you're either going to check out and go to the monastery and learn how to be content, or you're going to strive. And what groundedness argues is that actually the practice is to be content in the striving. So not necessarily to let go of those goals and not to let go of that ambition for excellence, but to do it in a grounded, channeled, holistic way where you're not obsessing about the thing that's out in front of you or worrying about what's in the past, but you're where you are. And part and parcel of this, there's all kinds of non-dual thinking in the book, but two examples are, we think that we can't be satisfied with ourselves and we can't feel like we're enough because if we do, that'll kill our drive. So conventional wisdom says you're either enough and content and holding hands and singing Kumbaya, or you're really pushing and going for it. And what I argue in the book is actually that's a false dichotomy. The best way to push and to go for it is from a place of enoughness. To talk about the difference between playing to win versus playing not to lose or competing from a place of love versus a place of fear. And um, that's one profound example. And then another example that is throughout the book is this notion of self-discipline or self-compassion. And again, these two things are often played off each other as opposites. But what my research and reporting led me to see is that those are actually complements. Um, self-discipline and self-compassion go hand in hand. It, your book, I've, you, I've heard you mention this elsewhere as well, but your book is sort of like somebody got Tara Brack and Jocko Willink and they put them in a room together and got them to write like their manifesto for, for life. You know, it's uh, yeah, it really does bring those two things that seem quite 
opposite together, the best of East and East and West, I think, you know, so it's, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, something else I wanted to ask was, I heard you say in the book that groundedness was not just a, an individual responsibility, but was also, also a civic responsibility or something along those lines. And what, what could our world look like if these were central values in our culture? You know, what, what, what might that actually look like? I think things would look really different. Um, let's start by talking about what groundedness is not and what a lot of Western culture is, which is a perpetual gauntlet of the need for more, more, more. We are constantly told that we are never enough. So we need to buy products and services. We need to get the next promotion. Um, every bit of kind of consumer capitalism runs on an engine of us not feeling like we're enough. There's this fascinating experiment that sometimes I would do when I was writing the book, which is I'd pay really close attention instead of fast forwarding to the commercials on television. And what I'd realize is that even in commercials for things like cat litter or dishwasher detergent or gardening soil, the people were always beautiful and they always were smiling and seemed so happy. And the message that we're being sold is that, well, if you just buy this cat litter, then you too will be gorgeous and have the perfect body and be happy. Um, we see that often in the corporate world. If you just get this promotion to vice president or to the C-suite, well, then you'll finally feel accomplished, right? There's so much of this if-then thinking. And um, there's, a, I think, a false belief that we need that for innovation and growth. And I actually don't think that's true. I think that we tend to perform at our best and we tend to feel our best and we tend to build the strongest communities when we actually feel like we're good enough. Just because you're good enough doesn't mean that you can't still want to get better and you can't still want to innovate, but it comes from a place of um, wholeness and abundance instead of uh, scarcity and fear. And generally when people are acting from a place of scarcity and fear, they view things as a zero sum game. Um, they tend to become very defensive. Uh, they tend to become very aggressive. And um, those are not good things for a, a well-functioning civil society. Um, so to get back to your original question, how might it change things? Um, I think that people would just be a little bit less frantic and a little bit more centered. And um, I'd like to think that we'd work together better and instead of kind of hiding these vulnerabilities or constantly feeling insecure, um, we could be more real with each other and with our work and, and things would be more sustainable. Definitely, definitely. And something that just comes to mind for me here. So the past few years, whenever I've been like, you know, sitting down to do a piece of work or whatever, and planning something out, I've gotten the habit of just asking myself before I do it, like just jotting down, you know, what principles do I kind of want to keep in mind as I'm about to do this work or whatever? And if it's things like presence or quality or whatever, I just find that even asking myself that question, it just everything that falls is is so much better you know so i think if we just had these central in our culture like it would be it would make such a difference to our quality of life you know yeah what i'm hearing you say there and i think that that's really beautiful is um just going back to the intention of why we're doing something because it's really easy to get swept up in the thing 
and to lose sight of that. So you can put together an interview and almost forget that you're having an intimate, meaningful conversation with someone that you respect or whose ideas that you respect and just get so caught up in, well, how many people are going to view it? How many downloads is it going to get? And it's the same interview and the, the person in the audience, they might not know the difference. The questions might be the same. The answers might be the same, but your experience of doing that interview will be very different based on whether or not you're really in it or you're doing it as a means to an end. And I think lots of times we get in this trap where we get sucked into doing things as a means to an end. And that's why we feel burnt out and miserable. Um, the metaphor that I use in the book is you could have two mountain climbers and they both really want to get to the top of the mountain. One climber is just obsessed on getting to the peak and how they'll be validated and they'll have self-worth and they'll take selfies and post on social media about how they got to the peak and how everyone will love them. And they'll finally love themselves if they get to the peak and the other climber exact same climb is focused on taking small steps and really being where they are and even allowing themselves to enjoy the view from the side of the mountain. Now, both of those climbers have an equal chance of reaching the peak, but the second climber is going to have a lot more sustainable climbing career. And I think that metaphor applies to all the peaks in our lives that we strive for. That's a, that's a powerful metaphor. And it reminds me of, you know, I think you're, you're friendly with Stephen Hayes. We've had him on the show a few times. He's an absolute gentleman, but his thing is all around, you know, uh, acceptance commitment therapy. And it's all around, you know, uh, living a values based life and committing to your values. And something I've heard you say as well is, you know, the point of a goal should be a destination of a journey you want to take. So whenever we're setting goals, we should be optimizing for the the process and the journey rather than this fleeting moment at the end whenever we you know you're an athlete and you're on the podium or you've gotten on the bestseller list or whatever whatever the goal is you know and it just whenever i heard that i was like <laughs> this process is your life the the the, the concept the goal is like a, a tiny fragment of experience you know it's so fleeting you use the example of an Olympian or a bestseller. I think those are really good ones because they're, they're quite, um, extreme examples, but even if you're representing the United States, where I live, our national anthem to sing it, can you see da, 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 probably takes about 50 seconds, not even a minute, but to train for an Olympic cycle is four years. Very few people medal the first time. So let's say the average Olympian, has gone through two cycles. So that's eight years, but to get to the Olympic level, they probably started training eight years prior. So that's 16 years of training and the actual moment, if you're lucky enough to get it is less than a minute. Bestseller list, your book hits, you get that big dopamine hit and that rush of seeing it on the list. That takes about a minute. Writing a book takes years. Uh, so yeah, these, these goals that we pay so much attention to, they're really ephemeral and fleeting. Whereas the process of pursuing those goals, that's what makes up our entire lives. And it's not to say that goals aren't important. They're so important, but their importance isn't as much in as we achieve them or not. It's do they set the course for the life that we want to live? And um, once you have that realization, you can't really unsee it. 
I wish I wish I had taken a course on this at like school or university. It would have just saved me so much hassle in my twenties. I think. I think that's um, true for a lot of people, and I I need to actively work not to be um, too cynical towards younger people in particular because I want to think of myself at 23 or 24 and how immature I was and how maybe I would have heard this message and agreed, but maybe I would have brushed it off. Um, I think that there's some truth that you kind of have to live through some, some failures when you're young to understand this. But when young people read my book, I just hope that I kind of short circuit that process and save them some, some grief along the way. Definitely. Definitely. And the thing about this approach is, is that, you know, every time you act on something that's important to you, every time you act out of value, it's energizing for you. It gives you energy, you know, it brings you life. Whereas when you do the opposite of that, it drains, you, you know, so you're essentially setting yourself up to win every day and feel good every day in the pursuit of things that really matter to you, you know? So it's sort of like a, a inside out approach to, to striving, which, which I think is really powerful. Now, that's right. Good. Real Sorry. quick on that, on that note, um, you can think of it as we have all of these external scoreboards that we're keeping track of all the time. So if you're a writer, how many words you've written, how many books you've sold. If you're an athlete, your training volume, the competitions that you've won in the traditional knowledge workplace, metrics are everywhere, right? Quality metrics, sales metrics, revenue metrics, cost metrics, all these dashboards. And Groundedness asks that you, at the very least, think about what your internal dashboard should be. Um, and that comes back to the values. So what are the things that you really want to prioritize and how do you define those things? Great. So you want to be present or you want to be creative. Well, what does that mean to you? How do you show up and practice that every day? And that's the most important dashboard to keep track of and to try to execute on. Uh, and so often we're letting the, the cart, which is all this external stuff, pull the horse which is the internal stuff and, and the horse should lead. Um, and that is, that's a big part of um, acceptance and commitment and, and work really pioneered by Stephen Hayes and colleagues. And I'm just trying to give it a little bit of a refresh in that section of the book. Definitely, definitely. And I imagine this is something you probably help your coaching clients with is, you know, become super conscious of what these values are and then find ways to make them concrete in their day-to-day -day, day -to experience. Yeah, that's right. Um, simple, but not easy. That's, that's a saying that I use a lot. And I, th I think like a lot of this is common sense, but as they say, you know, the, the thing about common sense is it's not that common, you know? Yeah, that's um, right. Um, so the, the book maybe centers around this problem of heroic individualism and for anybody that hasn't heard of this before, what would you say? What, what is it? And how can someone recognize that they might might be affected by it? What are the symptoms? So the way that I define heroic individualism is it's an ongoing game of one-upsmanship against yourself and other people where measurable achievement is the main arbiter of success. And wherever you are, the goalpost is always 10 yards down the field. So there is no finish line that is lasting fulfillment. Uh, the human brain was not wired to be content. We did not evolve to be content. Humans evolved in times of great scarcity. And if we would have been content after um, a big hunt or if we're gathering after finding a bounty, well, then when the next famine came, we wouldn't have had a surplus and we would have died out. 
So quite literally, our early ancestors that got selected and became us, um, they evolved to not be content for very long. So the, the, the trap of heroic individualism is we think that if we just accomplish this thing out in front of us, then we'll finally be satisfied instead of learning how to find satisfaction along the way. Because no goal that you think is going to satisfy you is going to satisfy you. Maybe it will for a couple of days or a week or maybe even a month, but eventually you're going to be hungry again. And being constantly hungry and telling yourself, if I just do this thing, then I'll finally be content is not a great way to live. I think it's much better to realize that like contentment is hard and the time to be content isn't when you achieve, it's in the process of striving for those goals. So what are some symptoms of getting caught up in this heroic individualism? Um, feelings of distress, restlessness, overwhelm, uh, frantic and frenetic, often feeling like all you want to do is just take a rest and shut things down for a bit and, and turn off work. But then the minute that you try to, you get really anxious and you feel the urge to check in immediately. Uh, being really successful by conventional standards, but feeling like you're not enough on the inside. Uh, often feeling really lonely, feeling like you're, um, you don't have time for the things that really matter. So you deeply want to foster community and in-person connections and you want to read novels, but you just never have time. Um, kind of a, a, a delaying of the things that matter until you achieve something. But again, never finding that real contentment um, because with heroic individualism, we trick ourselves into thinking that it's something outside of us or outside of our process that we have to achieve or acquire when the skill is to figure out how to get that during striving. Uh, back to those two climbers, it's really about whatever mountain you're climbing, becoming that second climber. So we're not talking about stepping off the mountain and you know renouncing striving and going to live in a monastery. We're talking about picking the right mountains to climb and then really learning how to enjoy the climb itself. Definitely, definitely. And it's sort of like trying to keep Jocko Willink in your head, hop every day in the tar rock in your head. Yeah. And I think I'm a little bit for the, for the audience that, that doesn't know, although most people probably know at least Jocko Willink's really popular and he's a big self-discipline and wake up early and just go crush it. And no one is feeling sorry for you. So you shouldn't feel sorry for yourself. And Tara Brock is known for her work on acceptance and self-compassion. Um, and I think that, again, this is just a dichotomy that a lot of people believe in, but I think it's utterly not true. I think in order to do really hard things and be self-disciplined, you have to be kind to yourself and learn to love yourself. Um, and I try to bridge that gap in this book. I interviewed Kristen Neff on the, pod or the podcast like a couple of years ago. And one of the things I, I learned that's really stuck with me since is this idea that, you know, self-compassion is actually linked with increased levels of motivation, which is totally counterintuitive to what people that are very driven are going to naturally think. They think, you know, if I let myself off the hook, then I'm just going to slack off and not actually pursue the things that matter to me. But it's the, the complete opposite, you know? That's right. And, and Kristen Neff, she's a really um, wonderful researcher. And, and she comes at this from her perspective, which is very empirically science driven, I come at this from the hat that I wear, which is much more as a practitioner, as a coach and as a writer. And, and the way that I think about it is it's hard to do hard things, taking risks, making yourself uncomfortable, really living life to its fullest, putting your skin in the game, making yourself vulnerable. 
All that stuff is really challenging. And if every time you fail, you beat yourself up, why would you continue to take those risks? You wouldn't because it sucks and you're going to fail. Like if you're pushing your comfort zone and whatever it is you do, you are going to fail. You're going to be disappointed. You have to learn to be kind to yourself. Otherwise, you're not going to get back up and keep going. So unlike what Jocko might say, I think the kumbaya, self-love, self-compassion is actually the key to making you a self-disciplined hard ass. Um, you have to be really soft to be hard. And this isn't just about winning Olympic medals. This is everything, right? Like eventually, if you have kids, your kids, assuming that all goes well, they're going to move out of the house and that is going to crush you. It's going to be devastating. But you kind of have two options. One is to still love the crap out of your kids and go all in and then know that you can be kind to yourself when that pain happens. The other is to not let yourself get so close, to not put all your skin in the game because you're scared. So I think the self-compassion makes you a little bit more fearless. There's this gentleman, um, Dennis Tersh, who's a really good therapist that focuses on self-compassion. And, and he talks about self-compassion makes you fearless. And I really, really like that framing. We've actually had Dennis on the on the show as well a couple of times. Um, yeah, we're running in the same circles, I guess. <laughs> well, when I'm doing hell runs now. Like I'm not like my self talk is like you know we've I've got this. You know, like it's or you've got this. Like it's like it's I'm still doing something that's hard, but at the same time I'm sort of like you know there's there's compassion there, and the reason I'm doing it is because it's, over the long term it's going to be beneficial. You know, it's. Yeah, in, in like this, the track that I like to use, and, and I, I introduce a couple of options in the book, but the mantra that I find really works is just simply to be like, this is really hard. I'm doing the best that I can. Here's what's happening right now. Let me respond. That's it. And that just immediately brings you back to the present moment. It does it in a way that acknowledges that being a human is hard, especially if you're trying to do something hard. By definition, doing something hard is hard. And it gets you out of your head and out of that judgmental loop. And it's just is almost like you got like an imaginary big brother behind you. Um, another beautiful way to think about this, this isn't original. It's, it's attributed to um, an anonymous Zen monk said that the whole point of meditation is learning to become your own friend. Wow. So that whenever you go do hard things, you've got your own friend there. Wow. I love that. I love that. Now, can you tell me about the relationship between happiness, expectations, and reality? Mm, this is one of my favorite psychological equations. So happiness is a function of our reality minus our expectations. So if our expectations for reality are much better than our situation, we don't feel happy regardless of how good things are. Whereas if our expectations are accurate or perhaps even a little bit worse than our reality, we feel great. Now, there are a couple of fascinating experiments that make this really apparent. So in one experiment, individuals put their hands in freezing, super uncomfortable cold water for a minute. And the experimental group then has to have their hands in super cold water, but it's two degrees warmer, but it's still cold. Whereas the control group, they just get to take their hand out. So each group had 60 seconds of terribly freezing water. And one group had an additional 30 seconds of just slightly warmer, but still really cold water. 
And when these people are asked about their experience, the 90 second group, they said that their experience was better. So even though they had a lot more total distressing cold water, they rated the experience as better. Why? Because their expectation was that it was going to stay negative five. So when it went to negative two, they felt better. Another way to think about this is the typical keeping up with the Joneses. If your expectation is to have a house and to be financially um, in a safe place and to have a school that you can send your kids to in a modest yard and you live in a neighborhood where that's the default, you're going to be really happy. But if you live in a neighborhood where all the kids go to private schools and there's mansions and the yards are all beautiful and you have the smallest house on the block by far, you're not going to be as happy. And there's all sorts of research that shows this, that individual happiness is less a function once our basic needs are met. So it's really important to say that. So once we have our basic needs of food, shelter, and security, our happiness is less a function of what we have and more a function of what's around us and what we think we should have. Isn't that wild? It does make sense from an evolutionary point of view, because, you know, if you were in a tribe and the other guys in the tribe had more resources and you were the guy that didn't like you're less likely to have a mate and then uh, reproduce. So you, our genes are like hardwired to compare relatively as opposed to objectively, you know? Yeah. And I think that that gets back to something. Um, all these threads come together in, in, in multiple ways, but a, a thread that you pulled on earlier, which is around like heroic individualism and in, in, in how this plays out, not just individually, but societally. And I think it's back to that same system that has beautiful people as TV actors on commercials for detergent. It's trying to elevate everyone's expectation. And often it's selling not only a false solution, like no detergent's gonna make you happy, you're still doing the freaking dishes, which sucks. But it's also selling a false goal, which is like, you can just be perfectly happy. You can be like the airbrush person on TV. Um, and now, unfortunately, it's not just paid actors and actresses that do this in commercials. It's most of social media. I mean, literally, there's a term on TikTok, filter. Like you filter your image to make it look better. So it's really easy to get trapped in a cycle of comparing your reality to someone else's fake reality and then feeling bad about yours because it's not as good as their fake reality and we're in like this upward spiral of creating ever and ever more perfect fake realities and of course we're all going to feel really crappy as a result of that it makes me think you know i've lived in london from time to time in my life and see so just walking around that city you just you can't you can't look anywhere without seeing like an advertisement of like some beautiful person holding some product or whatever and you're just constantly bombarded with the message that if you buy this you'll be happy but if you don't have this you're not going to be happy and that has to have some effect you know these people aren't spending all that money for no reason you know oh the effect is it makes you buy the thing yeah but then the thing doesn't make you happy because it is we talked about i mean i someone recently asked me what what success is or how i define genuine success and i think genuine success is knowing your core values in living your life in a way that allows you to practice them every day. Well, this brings me really well into the next question I wanted to ask you is about, can you tell me about the, the Dark Horse Project? Mm. So the Dark Horse Project is um, a longitudinal research study uh, at a Harvard. And the, the researchers followed uh, a handful of people that took very unconventional career paths. 
So a person that raised and bred horses, an air balloon pilot, a sommelier, someone that trained circus performers. What's a sommelier? A sommelier is someone that becomes like an expert in wine. Okay. Um, right, exactly. So not your traditional, you know, McKinsey or Goldman Sachs career. And then they compared these people's happiness and life satisfaction to their peers that were of similar intellect and academic performance, but went on to pursue much more conventional careers. And what they found is that the people in unconventional careers, on average, reported being happier and having more overall life satisfaction and well-being. And they called these people dark horses. And it's the dark horse path to happiness, which basically says, if you can define your values and what makes you tick and go live them, and largely walk to your own beat and kind of tune out the, the conventional definition of success, you actually end up a lot more successful if you define success as being happy and satisfied with your life. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's just, it's brilliant. And that study has affected me in many ways. Um, I'm very fortunate. I truly do love writing and coaching and working with people. But I'd be lying if I said that, like, I can't get caught up in the status trap that affects, I think, just about every artist or creative person that, that has work in the commercial market. Um, and that study in particular really influenced my family's decision to leave a big city and move to a small mountain town um, where you're not in that high status, you know, comparison alpha environment. And I'm sure it's had a positive impact on my happiness. I probably don't sell as many books, but that's not the end goal. <laughs> and I suppose you, you, um, if you, if you're out of that environment where you're just seeing this, you're, you're seeing this competition everywhere and everyone's sort of playing the status game, or whatever, and you're in your own environment and you're playing your own game, then it's a lot easier to win at that game. And you're not being pulled by, you've heard of this mimetic desire thing. I take it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. You, you, you take yourself out of that mimetic desire loop a little bit. Now, I heard you, you wanted to title this book, uh, good enough, but the publishers wouldn't, uh, wouldn't accept it. Why, why is this an important concept to offer you? Man, you are asking such, um, such wonderful questions. So thank you. Where did you hear that? Did I say that before? I think it might've been, I listened to a podcast with Scott Barry Kaufman, the psychology okay. podcast. It might have yeah, been it's there. true. I mean, it, it is true. I, I definitely said that. So the reason that they didn't want to, and they were right on this, is like good enough isn't very aspirational. And um, oftentimes you have to hook someone with a title and then you bring them along on the way in. And um, I think the practice of groundedness is ultimately a, a much better choice. And, and I like just owning the word groundedness and really defining it. So very thankful, especially to my editor, Nikki, who, who fought with me on that one. However, the concept of good enough, really important to discuss, right? It's got a chapter in the book. And this was a derivative of um, the psychoanalyst D.W. Winnicott, who was a, a 20th century psychoanalyst who had this term, the good enough mother. And to make it a little bit more time, timely, I'm going to say the good enough parents, because I think that there are many wonderful mothers and fathers. And um, Winnicott said, on the one hand, the parent that is a helicopter parent, that micromanages, that swoops in to solve every problem, that needs everything to be perfect, that smothers their child. The outcomes 
for both that parent and that child are not great. On the other extreme, the parent who is negligent, who just checks out and says, you know, my kid will figure it out. Those outcomes aren't great either, again, for both the parent and the child. But the parent who can create a safe space for their child to unfold on their own and to define those boundaries and then to resist the urge to go in and fix everything and to go in and make everything happen. But when the child starts to veer off that safe space and out of that, that, that zone, they nudge them back in very gently. Those parents had the best experience of parenting and those kids had the best outcomes. So I just think that that is such a beautiful way to think about parenting. And then when I was working on this book, I realized we should probably apply that mindset to ourselves. Mm. You know, like what would it look like to just be good enough and not to have to micromanage everything and not to have to be perfect and fix everything and make everything happen. And it got me thinking that when you actually look at people who attain greatness, and sustain greatness, they're just good enough over and over again. Like anyone can be great for a couple of days or maybe even a year, like burn really bright, but then flame out miserably. But when you look at people that have really solid careers, regardless of its intellect, the traditional workplace, the arts, certainly athletics, what you find is that they're just good enough over and over and over again. And very rarely are they great, but what they're great at is being really freaking consistent. And um, I just love that idea of like, can I just be good enough? And this flies in the face of like what Jocko or, you know, one of these motivational podcasts might say, because it's not as motivational as trying to be great every day, but being great every day, it's not really attainable un un unless you are like superhuman and we're not superhumans. Um, so then I really wanted to test this concept and make sure that like it just didn't sound nice and it wasn't nice poetically or in prose. Um, so I started looking at the research and, and a couple of things really struck me. So the first in sport shows that the highest rate of injury occurs when athletes increase their intensity beyond a trailing average. So if you have a trailing average intensity of practice of 10 and then suddenly you go to 15 to try to do like this heroic great effort your chance of injury goes way up whereas if you can just stick it around to 10 or 11 but do that for a year or a decade eventually that 10 or 11 becomes a 15 it's more sustainable so then you look at research in investing something totally different and there's this concept called regression to the mean which basically says that shitty markets eventually get better and hot markets eventually get worse and the goal of being a really good investor is just to be a better average over time because that mean should be going up over time but you're not worried about picking the right stocks and riding you know the high waves you're also not freaking out every time there's a low wave you're just trying to make your average a little bit better over time and that's how you get to be great that's how you get really rich in investing so then i looked at research on artistic and intellectual breakthrough and you see the same exact pattern that people that have breakthroughs, they do a lot of quantity, but it's not garbage quantity. It's not like they're just sitting on social media tweeting 100 times a day. It's good quality, but it's not perfect. It's good enough. And they're good enough over and over and over again. And then something great happens. Um, so this theme just popped up everywhere and, and it kind of became a guiding principle for writing this book that, yeah, we want to be great, but the way to be great is just to be good enough.
So powerful, so powerful. So it's just like consistency is key. And the only way you can be consistent is if it's sustainable. So it's almost like you you almost want to stop short of your limit each time. So the next day you go back and you're you're looking forward to it. Like I've heard writers talk about this and they say, you know, you should always stop before you're you're completely done for the day. Like leave the sentence like so that you're excited to write write that sentence the next day, like along those lines, you know. Yeah, that's it. And, and athletes train the same way. Like, even though you hear about people say you should train to failure, like you shouldn't, you should stop a couple of reps short. Um, I'd argue that organizations, like you, the right number of meetings is one or two before people get sick of meeting. Um, so you just want to show a little bit of restraint that allows you to be consistent. Now, is there a time and a place to go to the well and to pull the all-nighter? Absolutely. But they should be in rare circumstances. Like that that should be the exception, not the rule. Now the book's full with these these ideas that you we could call, you know, n- non-dual. And w- another one of these is that our values can often be found on the other side of our our vulnerabilities, the things we're most afraid of. Like that's often how we get to our values. Could you maybe talk a little bit about that? Mm. So this is a concept also um, that is rooted in in the third wave uh, clinical psychology practices, whether it's acceptance and commitment, cognitive behavioral therapy, or dialectical behavioral therapy. They all kind of address this notion that oftentimes the biggest, most devastating part of fear is that it causes us to avoid things. And the things that we're going to avoid are the things that really make us tick or otherwise would make us tick. And um, why is this? Because it comes back to having skin in the game. And if you really go all in on whatever it is that you care deeply about, you make yourself really vulnerable because the only certainty is that life changes. And when those things change, it's going to hurt. And Oftentimes we don't go all in because those things hurt. We hold back. We don't love fully because we're scared of when our partner dies. We don't go all in on parenting because we want to avoid the pain of when our kids grow up and move out. We tell ourselves that we're going to stop a little bit short trying at work because deep down inside we're scared we're going to fail. You see this in kids all the time. It's the kid in school that like didn't try in class because they were popular. But the reason they didn't try was because they were scared that if they tried and they failed, it would hurt. So oftentimes our fears are holding us back from the things that like really ultimately ought to fill us up and, and, and make us tick. Um, yeah. And you see this all the way up, right? This ladders up to the highest, most intense fears, like a fear of death to me generally means that you just love life. Or a fear of loneliness is like you probably you really value connection. Connection, yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, a fear of failure is that you value achievement and success, or perhaps you need to rethink what how you define success and achievement. Um, in in same thing with loneliness or, or death, like you need to rethink what it means to to be alive and rethink what it means to be in connection. But yeah, it is often these things that we fear on the other side of those are the things that we hold dearest. Definitely, definitely. And so in the book, you have these six principles. Um, we've got acceptance, presence, 
patience, vulnerability, deep community, and moving your body to to ground your mind. Um, I want to sort of touch on some of them here. Uh, we're not gonna, obviously not going to have time to cover them all, but something you know, the acceptance one is. I think, like, I want to ask: Are these sequential? You know, are we doing these in order? And with the acceptance, can you tell me about the curious paradox of Carl Rogers? So Carl Rogers is the humanistic psychologist that said, um, and I'm going to paraphrase, but we can only change once we've accepted how we are. Mm. And um, I just think that's so beautiful. And yeah, I do think that these aren't perfectly linear, but acceptance has to come first because in order to make progress on anything, whether it's an external project or something internal to ourselves, we've got to start where we really are. Uh, not where we think we should be, not where we want to be, not where we think other people think we should be, but where we are. And acceptance is really just about seeing clearly where you are, not judging yourself if it's not where you want to be, um, but getting a really honest appraisement of your situation so that then you can work on it. So acceptance is the first step, I argue, towards developing groundedness and, and towards making progress on anything. Yet it's so often something that we fail to do uh, because we wear overly optimistic glasses or we don't want to face reality or we're constantly comparing ourselves to impossible expectations like we talked about before. So we forget accepting reality. Reality just feels terrible all the time. And acceptance asks us to try to skillfully do away with all that and just to see clearly the situation that we're in and, and what it means for us right now. That's, uh, that's very well said. And the next one's presence. Can you maybe tell me about uh, self-distancing and how someone, why that's important and maybe a couple of exercises for how people can actually um, begin to do that? Right. So self-distancing is really important for when you are in a challenging situation or just you're faced with a, an ambiguous decision and um, you don't know what to do. And oftentimes that's because our sense of self, our, our awareness, our consciousness gets very tied up in that decision or in that situation. So we lose any distance between our experience. It's all just a blur. And self-distancing is an exercise to try to create some space between your awareness of what's happening and what's happening itself. And it's in that space that you can evaluate and hopefully make a, a wise decision or a decision that aligns with your values. And two practices that I really like to self-distance, the first is to pretend that a close friend or colleague or family member is in the same situation as you and really visualize that they're going through exactly what you are. They're confronted with the exact same decision that you are. And then pretend that they asked you for advice. What advice would you give to your friend or family member? What would you tell them to do? And then that's what you should do. You have to take that advice. And a similar exercise, and I think this is really powerful, especially for ambiguous decisions where you're not sure whether to go right or left, is to imagine yourself 30 years down the road. So an older, wiser version of you, looking back on current you, what would older, wiser you tell current you to do? And then do that. And both of these, they just help get some degrees of freedom between um, what you're going through and, and hopefully a wiser, more present, more, um, more deliberate discerning awareness of the situation i think those are two powerful exercises it reminds me of uh are you aware of a professor hal hirschfield from ucla he does a lot of work on the future self connection no i'm not that's interesting though i'll have to um i'll have to look into his work because it sounds similar 
he's got a he's got a book coming out soon, but basically he's he's done quite a few um quite a few studies on how feeling a stronger connection to your future self improves both motivation in the present and also decision making in the present. So people will like save more money. They'll um, they'll make better decisions about like diet and exercise and stuff because they have a very clear connection with this person that they are in the future, you know? So, yeah, um, that makes a lot of sense where, where I tend to find this really helpful is whenever I'm faced with a trade-off of, do I push harder at work or do I lean into spending more time with my partner or my kids, for example? And then I think of older, wiser me. And the answer isn't always spend more time with Caitlin or spend more time with my kids, but it often is. And the times it's not, that's equally as powerful because then older, wiser me is basically saying like, no, like this is a real important shot. You should go shoot it. Um, and those are just decisions that I can't make unless I take that backward step and create some space. Definitely, definitely. And it ties back into self-compassion as well. It's like this, this older version of you is going to be compassionate towards you in the present and it's going to help you make a better decision, I would say. Um, and now another one uh, is building building deep community. And this is a, this is a big practice in, in grinding this. I'm curious, you know, you moved, you relocated to Asheville from, from like a big city or whatever. And had you written the book or by this stage and did you apply any of their principles whenever you moved there to start building community? Yeah. So I, um, I'd written the book, but it hadn't come out yet. So I, I, wrote the book in the process of moving and I, I'm pretty sure that actually writing the book helped cement the decision to make the move. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, this is something that I think I don't do a good job on all these practices and principles, but this is one where I think I do a pretty good job. And um, it's just about investing in the real local community around me. It's really easy as an author to get swept up into kind of national or even international community, uh, which is not all bad. I mean, I'm talking to you, you're in Ireland right now. I'm in a small mountain town in North Carolina and we're having a wonderful conversation. So um, there's a lot of good in that, but it's also really important, I think, and the research bears this out, to know your neighbors and to actually be involved with like real physical human beings and to get involved in local issues instead of always stressing about global issues. Um, and uh, that is something that I've prioritized since, since we've moved here. And that also comes in a trade-off because oftentimes it is saying no to uh, conventional achievement or conventional success to make more time for community building. Because community building, especially if it's separate from your work, has nothing to do with achievement or success. If anything, it's very inefficient and unoptimal. It takes time to build community. And if you're just kind of hanging out, drinking a coffee or having a beer on the front porch with your neighbor and talking about neighborhood gossip or your life for two hours, uh, if you were just in heroic individualism focus, that would be the most inefficient way to spend two hours imaginable. But what I argue in the book is that that's actually the most efficient thing that you can do if your goal is to have a good, satisfying life, because we know that those bonds and a sense of community and belonging are the number one thing associated with long-term happiness and life satisfaction. Um, there was a longitudinal study out of uh, Harvard, the Grant study that has followed generations of people over the last 75 to 100 years. And 
Um, the the second the the study's been through three primary investigators because it's uh, it's been so long. And the second primary investigator um, was a psychiatrist who concluded that this study has shown that the key to happiness, full stop, is our relationships. Full stop. So. What is the first thing that gets cannibalized in heroic individualism when you're just constantly pushing to get to the top of the mountain and not really paying attention to anything else? Relationships, whether it's your intimate relationship, right? We know there's a high divorce rate in people that get obsessed with achieving goals or your friendships or your involvement in your community. It reminds me of like, you know, like if you see, if you're in a forest and you see like, you see the trees, like they're deeply, deeply connected under the earth and they're all like they're sharing nutrients with each other and everything else and it's like a human life is very much like that you know and the more connected you are around you the healthier you are like literally it's almost like there's an invisible world there of of connections and if you're cut off from the world around you you're in trouble you're in danger you know that's right when i was researching the book i learned that redwood trees which are 100 150 sometimes 200 feet off the ground massive enormous trunks their roots only run six feet deep to hold up a 200 foot tree. And the reason for that is because their roots intertwine with the roots of all the other redwoods around them. So you never see an individual redwood standing alone because it can't. Redwoods are always in groves. And it's just that the trees hold each other up through tough weather. And if that's not the most like poignant, beautiful metaphor for building community, then I don't know what is. That's powerful. That's powerful. Okay. So just wrapping up here, something else I wanted to ask you about was how do we take these, or how do you help your coaching clients take these sort of esoteric values and make them concrete and part of their day to day? This is so, so important because we might know these things, but we actually, how do we put them into practice? Yeah. So we go from the interesting, intellectual, artistic, philosophical conversations like the one that we're having and we say great what does community mean to you go ahead what does it mean tell me what does community mean to me it means yeah how do you define that it, for me it's weekly rhythms where i show up to this to the same things see the same people on a on a regular basis and you know if if I wasn't there, it would be noticed probably thing, you know, like a, a commitment, commitments to others and friendship and yeah, good conversations. Okay. So commitment to other friendship, good conversations. So that's a wonderful definition of community. And it sounds like consistency and showing up. So then how are you going to practice that daily, weekly, and monthly? I think, you know, I plan my, I plan my work week every week, but I don't plan my social week. Like I don't plan, like, you know, I want to see this person on this night and have dinner with this person on this other night or whatever. So I think whenever I'm planning my work week, I should probably plan my social week before that, if it is a value, you know, bingo. And that's exactly the exercise. And, and, and I didn't mean to put you on the spot, but you could do this for any value because ultimately the, the actual work of practicing it, it's not sexy at all right? It's just rolling up your sleeves and like putting something in your calendar, um, creating a monthly book club with your mates, saying that even though I'm not religious, I'm going to find an organization that closely aligns with my values because it's going to force me to show up every Sunday with the same people. 
uh, organizing a neighborhood potluck for the solstice of each season. I mean, I'm just coming up with arbitrary examples, but this is the work of actually practicing our values. Um, a lot of people say they value health. Okay, well, are you moving your body for 30 minutes a day? Um, what does that mean for the foods that you eat, for how you try to make sure that you're sleeping well? Some people value creativity. Great, are you blocking off an hour and a half twice a week to write or to read? Because if you're not, then don't tell me that you value creativity. So I think back to non-dual. Knowing these things and getting philosophical and getting intellectual and having conversations like this is so important. But then there's also doing. And doing these things is equally as important. And it's not as sexy and it's not as fun and it's not as interesting to talk about, but that's where the actual change happens. So in the book, I talk about this, right? The knowing doing gap. And literally, I structured the book this way. The first half of this book is, to me, intellectually fascinating. The writing's great. It's, it's just, it, it, I'm in heaven. But the back half of the book is all about doing. And it's not as interesting. The metaphors aren't as powerful. The stories aren't as great. But a lot of feedback I get from readers is that it's the back half of the book that like actually had the biggest impact on their life because it forced them to get really concrete and actually take these principles and figure out how to realize them in their own lives. Definitely, definitely. And something that is common to almost all of the principles is that, is that it's really about doing, doing real things, doing real things in the real world. I think that's how you put it. And, you know, like things like moving your body to ground your mind, building the community, um, even even the acceptance to some levels, like you're, you're accepting your, your emotional experience there as well. So I think that's so, so important to keep in mind. Um, just wrapping up, you know, if you wanted to give people one takeaway to get from this conversation, you know, to leave with something actionable, what might you recommend? I think that it would be this subtle shift in mindset that says that you don't have to be displeased with yourself to get better. If anything, the key to getting better is to feel like you're enough already. And that doesn't mean that you can't get better. The precondition for getting better, for peaking, for attaining excellence is starting from a place of being your own friend and being enough. That's really well said. And it's just one of many counterintuitive truths that are in this book, like non, non-dual truths that are in this book. And for anybody listening to this that's sort of curious about the topic, I like I really do recommend getting a copy of the book. Brad, where can people get Practice of Groundness online? Where do you recommend people to go? Yeah, so um, first off, thank you. I, it's high praise, especially coming from someone as, as thoughtful and, and who loves reading as much as you. Uh, the book should be available wherever books are sold. So for individuals that like listening to books, it's available on Libro, on Audible, and various other audio servers. And for people that prefer to read the book, um, it should be at your local bookstore. For those that are in an international audience, the book has a couple of translation volumes, but if you um, would like it in English, it's also available through Amazon. So pretty much anywhere you get books ought to have it. And your podcast, The Growth Equation? Yeah, that is my podcast, and that comes out weekly. And then um, the place that I'm most active on social media is Instagram. And um, 
ironically, I don't really share pictures there, but um, I, I try to just write a couple thoughtful posts a week and, and then largely tune out social media. But I know it's where a lot of people are, so I try to be there with, um, with good writing too. All right, Brad. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. I want to wish you the best of luck and just keep doing what you're doing. It's fantastic work. Thank you so much, man. It's been a pleasure talking with you too.